Welcome back to this week's episode of the Bulletproof Dad podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Coleman Nocter. Dr. Coleman Nocter is a child and adolescent psychotherapist. We sit down, we have a fantastic conversation about our children's needs in this modern world, how we can help manage their mental health between screen time, between online bullying, settling back into school, all these curveballs that come at us as parents. And then also we talk about Dr. Coleman's new book he has out about the four to seven zone, talking about how modern society has demonized being average. And this may challenge your views on certain things when it comes to being personal development and high achieving, but it's a fascinating conversation. This will challenge your views. I highly recommend you give this one a listen. The Bulletproof Dad podcast is sponsored by M50 Skip Hire. They're a local business that specializes in skip hire, but also commercial bins. So if you're involved in a small Irish business, practice to preach, look out for the small Irish businesses and get them to do your bins. So Dr. Coleman Nocter, you're very welcome to the podcast. For people listening, Dr. Coleman Nocter is a child and adolescent psychotherapist. So I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into this today with you, Coleman. Um, before we go tearing into stuff, you might just give us an idea of what that role actually means. What what a what a child and psych what a child and adolescent psychotherapist actually does, just to give us an idea of what that role involves. Yeah, well, I, I suppose I have small private practice, and that would be where the bulk of my work is now. Um, but I would have worked right across all the children's mental health services, so from inpatient units, day hospitals, outpatients, etc. But in psychotherapy, you normally see young people who are struggling with mental health problems. So that okay. could be anything from a young person struggling with eating disorder, anorexia, bulimia, something like that. Depression, anxiety is huge at the moment, more so than ever before. Um now, the age group, you can see any really age under 25 kind of be, would be youth and young people. Okay. Um, the bulk of smaller children might see things like play therapy, creative art therapy, because language and talking therapies might be a little bit beyond them at that stage. Mm -hmm. But really, when you get to kind of 11, 12, 13, 14, young people are well able to kind of articulate their story. Um, and therapy is just about trying to put language and understanding on experiences. So, okay. Um, young people who might be, I have a huge amount of young people who might have a history of bullying, being excluded, um, issues with self-esteem, self-worth, that sort of stuff. So it's really about giving them a space to talk through that with someone who's not their friend, not their parent, and someone who kind of can give them some advice. And, mm. and mostly it's about identifying patterns, you know, in terms of, well, this is the fourth time this has kind of happened in friendships and relationships. Yeah. Can we have a look and see what might we might do to change that or, or alter it around. But um, usually understanding something is key to being able to tackle it. Yeah, um, yeah. And so a lot of the start is around that. But as they're young people, it's uh, the, the biggest part of it is rapport and relationship. You know, they're coming in to see someone who they've been probably sent to go yeah, to see. Yeah. Um, uh, very few children and young people elect to go themselves. It's a bit mm -hmm. like grinds. They're <laughs> sent there. But um, so they have to see you as being on their side. Yeah. Um, so a huge part of it is building that rapport and trying to create a trusting relationship where they can tell you the bits that yeah, they're struggling yeah. with. Um, and um, and sometimes that can take a while, you know, Definitely, to, yeah. to kind of build that up. Um, and there's lots of teenagers who start off with, you know, hood up, knees up, don't want to talk to you, don't want to speak to you, don't want to engage. And then maybe a number of months later when the, the work is finished, they're they're really upset about leaving the process. Okay, you know? yeah. So, um so yeah, it, 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 it's varied. Um, you can you don't know what's coming in the door in some respects, and that's the bit I like about it. Okay, yeah. Um, but 
I think from anything from a mental health perspective, because we don't have a definitive test, like there's no blood test for anxiety or there's no x-ray for depression, whatever it might be, it leaves a lot of kind of guesstimate and guesswork mm. and put piecing things together. And while that might frustrate a lot of people, it's always been something that has drawn me to it. You know, I like the fact that it's not linear. Yeah, you know, that there's it's all a these different challenges there. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, and a lot of it would be working out relationships with families, okay, uh, parents, dads, so moms, all that. In your your clinic is in Nice. You're saying yeah, it's in Nice. Yeah. So w with that clinic, does that t you're obviously you will do some one to one work individually with children, but do you have that then where like you will have sit downs with the whole family and you're trying to mediate between everybody as well? That would be part of your work as well. Yeah. Usually, if you're starting out with someone, you'd have maybe see the young person and then the parents themselves They're separately the process, within yeah. the one of that and then. Usually every few weeks you'd bring parents in to kind of update how things are going from home, depending on the age of the child. As the child gets older, they tend to get more independent. Uh, towards, it's different working with a 17-year-old versus working with an 11-year-old. You know, they'd have different levels of autonomy and everything else. But uh, I suppose like everything, um, th the issue is demand is far outweighs any capacity I have for yeah, supply. Yeah, so yeah. if you're talking about the last number of years, I can tell you that Probably prior to 2020, I might have got five or six emails, queries a week. I can safely say that since September 2020, and it shows no sign of abating, you'd easily get north of 20 or 30 referrals yeah, a week. A jump, so yeah. there's um, there's a lot of worried people out there. There's a lot of young people struggling. Um, pandemic, part and parcel of that, but certainly I wouldn't think it as the origin of the yeah, cause, but it certainly yeah, didn't help. Maybe accelerated a bit. We might, we might go into that a little bit more because I like, definitely will. But I suppose the question I like to kind of put to you for because a lot of people listening to this are going to be parents, and the goal of listening today, I'm sure, is to how can they become a better parent and how can they better serve their children, basically. So, in a perfect world, if a child was to come into our lives and the child was able to say, "Hello, father. Hello, mother. This is what I need you to do for me over the next few years," what would that child, if they were able to articulate that in a perfect world, what would that be? What would they say? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I'm not entirely sure. Children and teenagers know what they need yeah, or would, what yeah. they want. So that's the, and that's part of the part. Like part of being a parent is giving a child what they need rather than what they want, mm. and it's the hardest part yeah. because it involves being unpopular and saying no. And you know you're doing it for all the right reasons, but it doesn't feel right at the time. Um, so, uh, but I think you know parenting has always become so much. It's become a lot more complex. Years ago, it was you know keep them safe and feed them sometimes, and that'll do. You know, whereas now. You need them to excel educationally, spiritually, physically, looking after their well-being, you know, 2.5 children, garden, St. Bernard dog, you know, all the, these expectations. And I think we have overcomplicated parenting. Okay. I think the simplistic part of any young person and any child, if you can gather a sense or, or protect a sense of self-worth, self-value and self-belief in your, that child. They're your big three, are they? They're my big three pillars. Can you, can you talk us through those pillars, so? Yeah, I mean, I think self-belief and self-value are different to what I think we understand them to be. So I have lots of parents come to me and say, you know, I want my child to be more confident. I want them to be able to speak out and be more certain. Which is normal. I think yeah. we all want that to an extent. Yeah. yeah, and confidence is handy, but it's confidence is not what you want your child to have. You want your child to have self-value. So okay. confidence is my performance. It's how I project myself out into the outside world. So I can be a very confident footballer. I can be a very confident singer. I can be very confident maths. But my self-evaluation is completely different. So my self-esteem is my relationship with myself. So you can have a child with high levels of self-confidence, but low levels of self-worth. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you can oftentimes see, you know, people who might be 
they'll sing in front of 80,000 people in Slane, but they might walk off stage and go, I was rubbish. Mm. That was, and all the adulation and praise in the world. So they're confident, but their self-worth is not. Okay, yeah. So if we, and what we're doing is we're focusing a lot on confidence, not a lot on self-worth. You know, so I want my child to be able to perform, to, to exude or to show a degree of assertiveness and self-belief. But in actual fact, many of those children may not have that inner workings. And it's your self-evaluation that's crucially important. So the child who, who can see effort over outcome. Yeah. I mean, that's a real huge, benefit. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. so you can say, well, look, I didn't get 600 points, but I gave it a good whack and, uh, and I'm happy with that. Um, it's also about children having a good, accurate belief of their own ability and their own limitations. You know, I think we were growing up in a time where as parents were kind of, you know, be the best that you can be and live out your potential and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I think if there's a generic problem for children, it's expectation and pressure. That would be... That's passed on to them. That's passed day, on. Yeah. That, that, that's a feature of now that I don't think was a feature before. And Why do you think that is? I think because, I mean, lots of people say social media and comparative cultures and all is, is part of it, and it certainly is. Definitely part, yeah. You know, in terms of, um, you know, you're looking at your kid and you've won a black belt in Taekwondo and you're only yeah. six, and my six-year-old is still got Velcro shoelaces and you're going to go, what am I doing wrong? Like, why can't I live up to that? And look, even we're talking about back to school and we're talking to someone there saying like all these Instagram lunchboxes with, you know, hummus and all this sort of stuff and you're going, oh my God, my jam sandwich that yeah. I'm giving my kid isn't enough. So parental competition is part of that. But it's not just that. I think there's also a bit around, we grew up in, well, certainly my generation of the 90s was kind of, you know, the prom queen and the American dream and be all you can be. Yeah. And I think we had... We have the means, perhaps many people now, to to give our children the best opportunities yeah. to, and you maybe feel that you know they're not going to have they're going to have more opportunities than I am. So you know, my child child swings a golf club, right? I'm going to get him Callaway clubs, and I'm going to get him into the and then and vicariously we try and relive our own experiences, perhaps through our children, and maybe that's new. Maybe that's part and parcel of contemporary culture that okay. wasn't there before. And I always use the example of grinds. You know, when I I, I went to grinds for past maths so that I could scrape a, a D in my leaving zone. Mm -hmm. And that was the only reason my mother sent me there. You know, now you just have to go past and you hear ads for kind of autumn's grind schools for a week here. Yeah. And do, it's not children don't sign themselves up for grinds. We sign them up. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And so from the point of view of, I think there's, uh, as parents, we probably are contributing to that pressure and expectation in a lot lot more of an active way than we probably are aware of ourselves. Okay, yeah. Well, we might delve into that a little bit more mm. because I think like most of us listening to this will be parents and it's great. I think some people might plug into this thinking, okay, what you, you, you'd you look at the child, look at the child, how can I look at the child? But often they forget to look at themselves. And I think as you are saying there in your clinic, when you're working with the child, the parents are an incredibly important part of the process as well. Like, so I think um, with, with going to that culture, like we mentioned about social media and the comparative culture, like I think most people can agree to some form of consensus that that's the way it's gone when we go on Instagram, for example, and we're scrolling, we see everybody's happy, perfect lives. That does have an impact on us. We're naturally going to compare ourselves to that. But, I, would you say it was always part of our culture? Like I, th I think back to my own parents, like my dad grew up in a small rural village in Tipperary and uh, my mom's family were from Clare as well, from a small, small village. And I think a big thing even seems to be embedded into Irish mentality in society is 
you know, compar- compar- comparison to the neighbors and what the neighbors are doing. Don't let the neighbors know this about us. And then also what are they doing? And like, again, I use an example on an episode recently. Like I remember my dad always telling me when they went to mass on a Sunday, the whole obviously village go to the church and everybody's there. The priest read, reads out the offerings of who donated what, which is absolute madness when you think about it now, but the pressure that would have put hardworking families on mm. back in the day, that this has kind of been ingrained in us in, in certain ways. And, um, do you think like it's a deep cultural thing in Ireland? That's probably part of it as well, that comparative thing. And this is just one way we're outlaying it onto our children or is it more just do you think a more modern thing? I think I, I think from an Irish point of view, the keeping up with the Joneses is not new. You know, yeah. we always needed to do that. But there's also kind of um, the Irish mentality. I remember my granny used to send me down to the shop with a bag, not because she was environmentally friendly, but she didn't want anyone to know what she was buying. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So yeah. it was kind of... So there was a kind of a, you know, non-bragging sort of mentality that, okay. that you know, that could be seen as arrogance or something like yeah. that. And I think perhaps the social media culture has allowed us to get over that. It's flipped that completely. <laughs> from yeah. that point of view. But um, from the point of view, what's different is like if you got a new mantelpiece in 1995, I'd have to go to your house and see it yeah. in order to go, Very true, we yeah. need to do up our mantelpiece. Yeah. Now you can send me a picture of your mantelpiece while I'm sitting at home. right? And the difference is, when you become producers of media as well as consumers of media, then you're not just comparing yourself to celebrity. You're comparing yourself to people who live two doors down. Mm. And that's a much more live comparison mm. than it would be before. So, um, and I, I, my children play sport. I go and I watch and maybe see one young lad playing really well. And I go, God, that's because his dad is out with him now, most evens, and I'm yeah, not doing enough yeah, of that. Yeah. And I need to do more of that. Get, and, yeah. you know, so there's no short of, of opportunity for us to compare ourselves poorly with other people. Yeah. Um, and that's nothing to do with social media. That's just to do with me feeling that I need to be a good dad, a good career person, a good this, a good that. And we oftentimes talk about, you know, mums under that pressure. Massively, Dads are under yeah. that pressure too. Yeah. You know, from the point of view of, am I spending enough time at home or how do I provide this and how can I... Yeah, something we talk about regularly in the <coughs> podcast here is like trying to get that balance of being the provider dad, so at work and doing what you have to do, but then also being the present dad as well. And like, I, I think something I've seen over the years is that I think the the pressure to be more present is definitely become a more of a, a modern thing, probably in, in quote unquote, like obviously it was always there, but in general, the old stereotype would have been the dad was at working all the time, mommy was at home looking after the kids. Whereas now I think our generation are kind of in this transition where... The mothers are actually at working as well and then trying to be present at home and then the fathers are trying to be more present at home. And I, I don't know whether we fully figured this out just yet. I think we're probably that generation that's trying to bring it from one to another in that transition. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, and I, it, like it's not that long ago where you know, you're you reading your Irish book and it's Daddy a gober August Tamami's a kitchen. And that's how you learned, you know, from that point of view. Yeah. But we are in a different world now. And, and I can tell you that you know, I'm working in, with children and families for 25 years. I can tell you that every year there's more and more dad involvement in mm-hmm. the therapy. You, early days, you never would have seen a dad come to a session or mm-hmm. have an interest in that or, you know, t- show a genuine concern. Um, maybe because they weren't let to come or maybe they didn't want to come or they're too busy. Whereas now you do. And I think there's a narrative around, you know, it's great to see dad, more dads pushing buggies, but dads do a lot more than push buggies, mm-hmm. you know, from the point of view of... The, their involvement in and their concern and their awareness and how tuned in they are to their children's lives is crucially important. And I I really celebrate that. I think that's a wonderful transition to make. But that doesn't come without its pressure. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, you know, and we, we've listened to a decade of parenting experts like me saying it's not about quantity of time. It's about quality of mm-hmm. time. It's not about 
you know, things. It's about experiences. It's not about, and those things are really true, but they also create a pressure. You know, am I doing enough quality experiences with my children and how can I do that and do all this other stuff as well? And, um, you know, I, I think it's, you know, it's not easy time to be a dad. It's not an easy time to be a parent. Yeah. Um, and I think the landscape has changed so much in the last five years around, or certainly 10 years around children's lives that it is probably the most difficult time to be a parent. What do you think the biggest factors are that have kind of, I suppose, the, uh, supercharged that change in the last few years? I think technology is undoubtedly, it has changed the landscape of how children communicate with each other and how they communicate with us and how they learn. Um, I was only talking to uh, public health nurses there recently and they, they're now getting rid of the block building test in development okay, yeah. because children don't know how to do it. Yeah. Not that they, they don't have any difficulty in terms of doing it, they just have never done it before. Okay, so, yeah. you know, to, to, to kind of, that's even changing our functional. Wow, that's, you know, yeah, that's amazing. So, yeah. um, and, the, and the idea around, I suppose, our young, our children's environments, have physical environments have never been smaller and their virtual environments have never been bigger. Yeah. Uh, but, our involvement in our children's lives and you know lots of people say oh they lament the day when in the summer time when we grew up you, know, you sent them off at nine o'clock and we came home at nine in the evening and nobody knew that any the wiser i still think parents have a very poor grasp of what their children's lives are like now because they're up in the room on a portal to the mm. outside world of which you've no idea who they're talking to or how that relationship yeah, is going true, yeah. whereas before you might have had moments where they'd come in and you'd see the pals visiting in the mm. kitchen or whatever you'd get a well, sense well you'd know their circle because their mm. circle was all on, on your doorstep really that's all they had whereas now it could be anywhere and, and, the world and it's yeah. really difficult mm. to know what your child is you know I've sat with parents who are going I had no idea that mm. they were going through that I had no idea that they were experiencing that bullying or exclusion or that they were even you know in that circle or that mm. they even knew those people and you know so you know you can have this idea of it was great years ago because we didn't have that kind of surveillance. Yeah. But now, just because a young person, your child is up in their room, doesn't even mean that they're safe. Safe, yeah, which sense. is yeah, mm. which is incredible when you get try to wrap your head around that. Mm. Like it really is scary. And again, like with regards to communication, say if a child was going through cyberbullying, which is then it's probably something that you've seen huge, huge rise in recent years. Um, sometimes I suppose I'd have in my mind there is like you'd love for your if your child was going through that, you'd obviously love for them to tell you that. But I could see a, a barrier there for very straightforward being, say if I was on Instagram and I was getting bullied on Instagram, the parents' reaction or my fear of my parents' reaction might be, okay, look, we're getting rid of that. You're not on that anymore. And they, they have connections with their friends and other people that they don't want to lose. So would that be part of the reason that there's a communication breakdown there where children are maybe afraid of communicating these things to their parents. Maybe they know they should because they know stuff that's going on, but they're just afraid that it's going to get taken away from them if they do mention it. And as a result, they could suffer in silence. Yeah, I think most people say parents will give a phone to their child with a sense of trepidation and mm. go, no, you be careful with this. Mm. And and there's a real fear of the, t I told you so, when it goes wrong. Yeah. Right? So the number one reason why children don't report that they're having a diff difficult time online is for exactly that reason, that the phone will be taken from them. Yeah. Um, so the most useful thing you can say to your child is no matter what, it doesn't mean we'll take the phone off you, but mm. you still need to come to us and we'll have that conversation about it. And I think, you know, um, the the idea around how we as parents offer that open door policy, you know, that's reflective of 
the relationship that you have over a period of months and years. It's not just one conversation. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So children will trust you because they trust you. I was just going to say, it comes yeah. back to that word trust really, mm. doesn't it? And again, I think the good summary of trust is that it's a, it's a very hard thing to get and it's a very easy thing to break once you get it as well. It's, it's so tender. 100%. Yeah. And, and, you know, children and adolescents and teenagers especially are, are kind of naturally suspicious of adults. Um, they, they see you as being kind of anti-fun, anti-crack and that sort of <laughs> stuff. So they'll always assume there's that kind of... Yeah, as cool as you want to, to think we are as parents, yeah. And that's another interesting thing. I mean, I think the gap between parents and children is less than it was before. So okay. I'll give you an example. Like I, I would listen to kind of similar music to what my 10-year-old daughter would listen to. Yeah. You know, we'd both bop along to Kylie's cool, yeah. new songs or yeah. whatever. Um, whereas that wouldn't have been the case when my dad was growing up when he listened to Perry Como or something. Kylie wasn't around. <laughs> um, and even you look at pictures of, you know, that generation and they they were 20 but they looked about 40. Yeah. You know, they're, 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 <laughs> it's true. Whereas yeah. now I think the idea of parents are trying to stay young as much as possible and children are trying to grow old as quick as possible. Yeah, good. Yeah, so that summer, gap yeah. is not necessarily as clear cut. Yeah. And so that leans itself towards trying to be more cool and friendly than it is about being boundaried and being firm. And where could that be an issue then trying to, when you're trying to be the, the cool dad, let's say, how could that potentially cause problems? You see, <clears throat> children don't want another friend. Mm. They need a dad or they need a mom, whatever it might be. And so in that situation, your role as a parent isn't to be in agreement with them all the time. It isn't about um, facilitating everything that they need. And it isn't about providing them with every opportunity that they wish to take. Mm. You know, it's about your job is almost like, the, the task of childhood is regulation, right? So you take your two-year-old to the shop and refuse to get them buttons and they have a tantrum. By the age of 22, they don't do that anymore. Mm. So they've learned to regulate over that 20-year gap. And they've learned that through you and school and law and all these things that kind of regulate. So our job is to, is to regulate or teach children to self-regulate. And that means putting in boundaries. And that means, you know, that's enough ice cream. That's enough. You need to go to sleep now. You need to do this now. You need to, because children don't have a capacity for self-regulation. You don't go to a kid, there's five liters of ice cream, you know, have at it and come back to me when you vomit. Mm. You know, we tell them that's a portion, yeah. that's enough, all that sort of stuff. So despite wanting more, we have to say, no, that's, this is, this is enough, right? Um, and the clash in that is that sometimes we don't know how much is enough or how much is too much, or we don't want to be, and again, I think that's maybe part and parcel of the fact that maybe we are working longer and, you know, don't get to see your kids. Like if you're dropping your child off or you see them at 15 minutes in the morning or 20 minutes in the it's evening. Intense you know, you're dropping and, them off and getting you know, Everyone's cranky and tired. And so the weekend comes and it's like, here we go, off to the toy shop or whatever yeah. it might be. Um, that's that, And that's something we have to negotiate and we have to work out rather than just indulge. Do you know what I mean? So the idea of, of self-regulation and teaching regulation is about role modeling that. And it's and that's sometimes about, can we stay up for another half an hour? No, you school tomorrow, you got to go. Do you know what I mean? Um, and that means they'll fall out with you and they'll be grumpy for you. But in their 20s, they'll thank you for it. I think, I think it's a great summary there because you often hear parents, particularly dads, say, I'll never leave my kids wanting for anything. I want to make sure they got what I didn't get and stuff like that. And I think when you go all in with that mentality, you kind of lose sight of what you spoke about there. I think it's a very, it's hard to strike that balance. Mm. And sometimes you get it wrong, you'll be on either side of it. But I think that's a, it's a great way to kind of give people perspective there that like, again, boundaries are a huge part of this. And as you said, as they get a little bit older then and they have the chance to kind of process it and look back, 
that's when they'll they'll thank you for it, which is yeah. And, and again, I'd say if you reflected on your own life, most of the good decisions you made were regulated decisions. Yeah, where you kind of said, "No, I'll, I'll step back now, or I'll give that up now, or that's enough of that, or you know, whatever that might be." Yeah, and that spares you indulging or overdoing something. Yeah, I think it's something I speak about with clients in the gym all the time when we're talking about nutrition or something like that. You're talking about short-term versus long-term gratification, you know, and trying to wrap your head around that because, yeah, you get a craving for this food or that food, but you know after you eat it in an hour's time, you're going to feel like crap and you're going to even feel worse than you did now. Whereas if you can see the bigger picture and maybe let the craving pass or choose a healthier option, you're going to feel so much better than a couple of hours later. But particularly as a child, you don't have that perspective at all. It's hard enough as an adult, but definitely not as a child, you wouldn't have that. So um, not a, that's a fantastic summary there. And with with the clinic that you have, just to kind of stay in the parenting a little bit more, because I think there's huge value here for people listening. Um, when the, the dads are involved and we're talking, I think the cyberbullying is a really interesting subject. And something I often hear about, I actually had a, we had a Dr. Dean McDonald here talking about um, the, the impact that social media and technology has on kids. And it was a fascinating conversation. But what he kept talking about was the studies were all done on screen time, screen time, screen time, which is cool. And obviously you have to monitor that. But obviously the quality of screen time can vary dramatically depending on what you actually have on your screen, you know? Like, for example, if I had a an hour-long podcast that I was watching with Dr. Coleman, Dr. talking about how to be a better parent, there's huge value in that. Whereas if I was watching an hour of, I don't know, something shitty on Netflix mm. or just scrolling through Instagram it's not going to be of the same quality because um, you've mentioned now a couple of times like and you're dead right about like spending quality time over quantity it's very easy measure quantity stuff but it's very hard to measure and kind of have a perspective on the quality side of things so if we talk about a dad let's say who maybe been working with in your clinic and you're talking about that quality of time and we're saying like how how would you give them some maybe something to how would they measure that that they know that they're having quality of time for their for that perspective like what would what would they have to kind of measure up against that it, when they review their day and go oh, i had half an hour with my son playing in the back garden how did what would be the boxes that they were trying to check mentally for that was a, a good quality piece of time is it keeping the phone away is it like is there anything that you would work with that so they could have something to measure against or maybe that's the complete wrong way to look at no, it no it's it's not and a common conversation over the years would be I would say to dad, you know, your daughter or your son feels a bit invisible. Right? Yeah. And dad gets defensive or mom gets defensive and says, I bring you here, I bring you there, I bought you that, I bought you this. You're ne- you know, I put a roof over your head. All yeah. that. And, you know, th- and that's all true. Uh, but say the child says, but you never asked me how my match went. Yeah, okay. Or yeah. how I play. Mm. So there's a, what they're looking for isn't you to do things yeah. for them. It's And it's interesting, we did this study a few years ago around quality moments you know or what and the things that children said and things parents said were completely different so yeah. the children were saying oh that time we built a fort with the cushions on the couch you know when mom was away or whatever or was it something we were supposed to do or that time when we were going to the match and we had the puncture and we were all laughing at dad sitting around trying to <laughs> stressed out, like, yeah. <laughs> those are things that they're the memories that people take because yeah. it's it's something that's exceptional it stands out and it's you don't remember what someone did. You remember how it made you feel. Yeah. You know, so the idea way. around how you create. So it doesn't have to be, no child said, oh, that big marquee that we had for my communion was my top moment. You know, yeah, that's yeah. Not, or that big fancy holiday we went on. That wasn't it. You know, there's almost these moments in time where there is uh, an authenticity between two people. And that can be just laughing about something mm-hmm. or having a joke about something or whatever that might be. Somebody mispronounces a word and everyone has a bit of a laugh around it. Um, 
they're tiny minuscule things, but they're cumulative. Mm -hmm. So they add up over time, you know. And so, you know, um, I oftentimes it's kind of grim thing but if you're talking about my obituary I hate I would hate people to stand up and give a CV of what I did I'd like them to describe who I was you know and and warts and all sort of a thing so children do it's those kind of and they're almost the unplanned ones. If you if you're trying to get the perfect day, and we're going to go out and do it, they're like the non Instagrammable <laughs> moments, really, no, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, but they're not going to be captured on yeah. those things. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And how many times have you had a kid kind of stand up and smile for this picture? <laughs> and they're you know that's it's for that moment to yeah. kind of create an an image of something. Um, you know, take don't take the picture and don't yeah. ruin that moment. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But uh, we live in a, in a world where if it's not captured, it's like it didn't exist. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But, but for to measure quality, it's about um, closeness of connection, rich moments. Okay. Do you know what I mean? So if I said to you, uh, do you love your partner? You'd probably say yes. Uh, if I said to you, when did that happen? You wouldn't be able to say the 6th of February. Stage, yeah. You'd say over a period of time when I, you know, did, she made me a cup of tea when I wasn't feeling well mm. or she laughed at a joke that I knew that wasn't funny or, you know, that day when we got caught out in the rain or something. Like those those will be the moments that create that connection. Yeah. They're not staged events which we can kind it of... It wasn't the holiday to Paris or something like that, yeah. But it might have been <laughs> might, part maybe of it. Maybe rained on when you were there or something. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's, it, it, it's, it's not about, it's not about gestures. Mm. It's about connection. Yeah. Yeah. That's great to summarize it. No, I mm. think there's a, again, I'm hopeful to a lot of guys listening to this, they'll take a bit of perspective of that because I think when we go back to what we mentioned earlier about the comparison thing, they're very hard moments. As you said, they're, you can't really capture them. And then as a result, you can't really measure them against anything like that. So I think it's, if you can get it clear, if we took nothing else away from today about the perspective of quality over quantity and what that actually looks like and feels like, I think would be huge for anybody listening. Um, Colin, I'm also like, we could go on about the, 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 the children aspect here of mental health for, for so, so long. One thing before we do kind of come away from it, because I want to talk to you about the new book you have out and the, the more bit, a little bit more about adults' mental health, because I think it's all intertwined together as a parent, definitely, is the report that came out um, a while back on the, the CAMS report. And uh, like, again, I'm not an expert in this field, so I'm not going to try and compensate over it, but the overall feeling from it was... Uh, from a lot of professionals like yourself seemed to be that I don't think it was a major surprise to anybody who was in the field but obviously yeah there was it seems to be a lot of shortcomings as a country and what we're doing for our young people could we talk about that for a couple of minutes maybe you might give us a little summary of, of where that was yeah I can I mean I, I, I'm first thing I'm going to say I'm not an apologist for CAMS so yeah. you know I, I worked in CAMS services for many years over the years but there are definitely problems within it yeah. um, and there's funding and resources issues and everything else but for me it the CAMS, CAMS is sometimes a, a handy and convenient whipping boy from the system's point of view yeah. because it is the kind of bold child of the health service, if that yeah. makes any sense. But what uh, to give well, you a bit of context... Just before we go into it, could you explain exactly what the what CAMS stands for and what their actual oh, sorry, roles so, and obligations are, just in case someone listens to so what CAMS they're for. So CAMS is C-A-M-H-S, is the yeah. Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service. Yeah. Right? Now, I, I'll just give you a brief history, I'll give you context, right? prior to 1960 we never had psychiatry services for children so this guy from Scotland came over and he set up a child psychiatry service and for six months nobody came there was no referrals and he said Jesus, Ireland is an amazing place none of, these, none of these children have mental health problems we didn't have uh, an issue with uh, being a medical miracle we just had a huge stigma problem so nobody would go when it said psychiatry over the door and we had asylums and people thought their children would be sent away and never come back so they said right we'll rebrand it we'll call it a child and family centre Okay, and yeah. whoosh, with, they got all the referrals. Yeah. But everything from trauma, poverty, neglect, overcrowding. Exa- 
So then they changed it to a child guidance clinic in the 80s to try and say, no, it's just about the kids. It's not about, you know, we need to narrow this down a bit. And then in the 90s, they changed it back to a child and adolescent mental health service. So it already had this kind of reputation of being a catch-all for everything. Yeah, right? okay. Now, CAMS is a medical, biological health centre. So mm. it treats things for with mental disorder. So eating disorders, OCD, depression, and you know, things that would respond to medical treatment. But what happens is CAMS has been a catch-all for trauma, bullying, uh, low self-esteem. So it became almost things that it wasn't really catered for. Okay. And so it then started to, to, to kind of wean its way back and refuse things. But there were no other services available to cater for all those other things. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So... So if I went with an eating disorder, for example, if I was a 16-year-old with an eating disorder, you should be, you go to CAMS. But if you say, like say for example, here's a classic example. A young person who is being bullied in school, they maybe have a learning issue around dyslexia. They are suffering with that and their mood is low. They have high levels of anxiety and they start smoking weed, right? So that comes into the referral and they'll say, well, yes, there's depression and anxiety there, but you need to go to substance misuse to sort out your the weed problem and then we'll come back and look at that. So then you go to the substance misuse service and they say, well, actually you've got a mental health problem which is causing you to smoke weed so you need to go back there. Then they'll say, well, actually you were bullied because of your learning difficulties. You need to go to educational psychology because it's your dyslexia is the issue. So all these three services are passing yeah. this child around and nobody's working together. Yeah. Right? So for me, it's, it's very simple. Say for example, a, a village, CAMS came in and it was a plumber. And it said, look, we've no plumbing jobs. Would you mind tiling me front room? And would you mind cutting me hedge? And would you mind doing this? And so it did it. Mm. And then all the plumbing jobs started to pile, to pile up. But there was no tilers. There was no horticulturists. There was nobody employed to do the other stuff. And so that's the issue. So for me, it's not about make, giving more resources to camps. It's about developing that primary care service where children can get intervened with early. So as soon as they show, show signs of being excluded or struggling with their mood or something like that, they'll have a, a quick prompt reaction that there'll be therapists, not medical people, not doctors. You don't have to go, you know, you don't go to a, a specialist arthritis rheumatologist because you have a pain in your hand. Yeah. You know? and, and for me, the, the health service almost, the psychiatry service is like, and this will be interesting to you, it's like the health service without physios. Okay. If you had no physios, everyone with a pain would go to an orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. It's, right? yeah, so, it's and, and it would just clog up. To the extreme end straight away. So, yeah. so we need a kind of a physiotherapy system, I get you, which yeah. is a psychotherapy system, yeah. which will catch much of those things earlier rather than having everyone waiting outside the orthopedic surgeon's mm. office. And then pain their refer on when needed and communicate with yeah. that referral as well. Yeah, exactly. And look, if you think about general medicine, you have diabetes, arthritis, oncology, mm. all that sort of stuff. Mental health is just mental health. Mm. And mental health is the same variation as terminal cancer to the common cold. There's yes, the same... Yeah. And then they're all trying to just buckle into the one office to try and... It doesn't make sense. It, yeah. It's not It's not surprising the system doesn't work. Mm. Do you know? And it doesn't. It's a third world standard, you know. Which is frightening when you think about the resources that we potentially have at our disposal. How are you? Just a quick reminder that this podcast is sponsored by M50 Skips. So if you're doing a spring clean at home at the moment, make sure you give them a shout. They're a local business based in Santry. Give them a shout. Mention the Bulletproof Dad podcast and they'll give you a 10% discount on your next skip hire. Um, do you think that's, again, going back to, because you mentioned there the figures you've seen over your clinic in the last few years, like that's obviously a huge part of that as well. Are people tend to, who are maybe with children that are struggling, are they just kind of abandoning the the national system we have and just have to go privately? Is that kind of the standard? If you if you want stuff done at a 
reasonable pace. Yeah, the problem is the private lists are now as long as anything else. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So th th that's a, a bit of an issue. Um, I mean, the investment has to be, like, there's a great quote, you know, it's, we need to stop pulling people out of the stream. We need to go up the river and find out why they're falling in. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And there's there's no sense of that. And I would, ideally, I'd love to see mental health teams and psychotherapy teams in schools. Mm. So as soon as the kid starts to, there's a, a referral Someone point. There, so they yeah. get, and a lot of it is signposting. You know, mm. so you, and I've worked in cams and there's somebody comes to you and they've been waiting on this waiting list for 18 months and they arrive to see you and they're going, you're in the wrong queue. You should have been over there. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so now you have to go months, and join yeah. that. Whereas, you know, if you go to the airport in the summer, someone's going to, rather than have everyone looking up at that big screen, someone's going to look at your ticket and go, go there. Or if mm. you go into the cinema, someone says your seat's over here. Mm. It's not, you know, it's not rocket science that yeah. we need a signposting service to say, okay, this is a social problem, you need to go there. That's an education problem, you need to go there. That's a health problem, you need to go there. Rather than having everyone just kind of arriving outside and randomly. Are you optimistic we'll get there eventually? Or? It's so possible. Yeah. We're a tiny population. We're yeah. the size of Manchester. Yeah. As a country, we have our own ruling state. Mm. Uh, it's not easy. And the thing is, it's not something that gets votes. You know what I mean? It's yeah. something that would yeah. take ages to do. Um, and so it's much easier to just try and, like, as somebody said, it's easier to build a clinic than regenerate a slum. You know, from the point of view yeah. of, it, we'll just get these patchwork jobs and say, oh, I added four beds I did that. to this. Yeah, yeah. That seems to be how friends. the measure, the measurement is, again, talking about the measurement of quantity over the actual quality of work that's getting done. And again, that's healthcare politics, yeah. you know, unfortunately. But yeah. um, it's, um, it's disappointing because I do think it's possible. I don't mm. think it's beyond the reach of a great deal of organization and a, a political will. Okay, but, okay. Unfortunately, we don't have that. Yeah, okay. Well, I, I think I'm conscious, like, it's a, it's a great summary of, of where that's at, because that's only clowning came out earlier this year, didn't mm. it? Like, again, it's it's still, I think it still seems to be sending ripples around the um, the place. And hopefully, people listening to this and parents in particular, if they kind of get their head around this and understand a little bit more, and it becomes, if more people are aware of it, then it becomes a priority for people. And then when people are going to the voting polls or wherever else, then all of a sudden the people, the decision makers might actually start listening and make it a priority. Again, that's kind of where the, usually where change happens has to start from the ground up and, and build that pressure. And just to, for your listeners, there's a service called Jigsaw, which kind of is trying to fill that gap. Okay. Um, and there's, I think, 14 of those around the country. Yeah. Um, they're funded publicly. Um, and it's, I don't know whether not a lot of people know about them or people just assume to go to CAMS first. Yeah. Um, but if you are, if you have a child out there, just want to look to your local jigsaw and see if they have any space to see them because they're doing a lot of work with online sessions and Zoom sessions and things like yeah. that. So, um, yeah, worth checking out for sure. If we were, as we're recording this now, it's literally the week where kids are going back to school. Uh, so by people listening to this, they're probably a week or two down the line. Is there any certain signs that parents should maybe watch out for if they were worried like, kids going back to school, some people are, some kids are running in the door, other kids just aren't too keen on school, but then there might be a few who really don't want to go back for maybe bullying reasons, for example, but they may not share that. What would be kind of the stuff that parents could look out for? Yeah, like, I mean, again, it's not about, um, you know, it's not about the acuteness of the symptom, it's the more the length of time that it stays. So mm -hmm. from the point of view, um, you know, where it affects their functioning. So if they're refusing to go to school or if they're not sleeping at night or their diet is gone or their biology or their social world, they're more disconnected. They're you know, kind of isolating themselves a lot more than they usually would. A sure sign is if they're kind of being angry and hostile towards younger siblings. That's kind of a frustration okay, that yeah. oftentimes you can see. Um, or if they're, you know, being more secretive around their phone use and things like that, there can be sometimes, that can be red flags that something's going on. But what I'd say is we're all three-dimensional humans, so we think, we feel, and we do. So you'll see the doing first, so the behaviours, the sleep, the appetite, that sort of stuff. 
then you'll address the thinking. So how are you thinking about school? I'm useless. I'm rubbish at this. I'm never going to get through this year. I'm going to fail, whatever. And then the emotions is I feel sad. Or I feel. Mm-hmm. So what we do as parents, we tend to jump to the emotion. Don't jump to the emotion. Use the behavior as evidence. Ask them how they're thinking about something, which is a lot less threatening. And then work towards how do you feel about all of that mm-hmm. rather than tell me how you feel. Yeah. Sometimes can feel like you're shining a light in their face and they might not have the answer for that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, so yeah, work your way point, in. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So again, so to to question the feeling is probably the best way to, yeah. to summarize that. Yeah. It's a nice way of bringing it together. And mm. um, then when people like, because a lot of parents like they want to do right by their kid, but maybe they haven't got the toolbox to then when the feelings open up, when, when is the kind of the signal then to, to, to maybe refer it or get help or where would they go to next? Would they go straight to Jigsaw or could they go to the GP first or would GP refer? Or what's kind of the next step? If they were worried about their child, they've had a conversation and they're kind of not really sure what to do next if they think they need it, they need some external help. Yeah, GP is usually the first port of call. I mean, I'd exhaust your own resources first. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, you know, you're within your family and your support. And I mean, it's we have to be very careful that we don't um, pathologize everything. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we, and I, I worry about that a lot. I think we, um, we've gone from mental health promotion to mental illness promotion. So in would ADHD be a good example? Example of that, yeah. yeah. Do you ever forget things? You might have ADHD. Do you like things to be back, put them back where you put where you found them? You've got AC, OCD, you know, and yeah. that sort of thing. And there's lots of that sort of mental illness promotion, yeah. which is not helpful. Life is not, like, pathology is a very specific thing. Yeah. Um, and not all worry is anxiety. Not yeah. all sadness is depression. Yeah. You know what I mean? So lots of parents who get in touch with me are very highly worried about something. And you're kind of saying, that's absolutely normative. That'll be fine. That's just, a, mm. you know, and you, things like children who struggle to sleep at night when they're around nine or 10 and they're kind of worried about people dying and they're worried about death. And uh, that's a very normal developmental thing. However, if they don't come out of that after a few weeks and it's staying, yeah. then it's, and so I would always use the example of if you go to visit your friend who's just broken up from a relationship and she's upset and she's in a tracksuit and she's eating Ben and Jerry's and listen to Adele, you wouldn't bring her to the GP because you'd say yeah, it's, it's part relevant. of the process. Yeah, you came back six months later. She's still doing that. Yeah, then you might think she needs some help at that yeah. point. So, yeah. no, rather than the extent of the sad, like things like grief, it's important that people are sad about loss. They mm. should be allowed to be upset. They should be allowed to struggle. It's when the struggle doesn't seem to be coming back, or you're not coming back from it with the normal resources. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Do you think with parents as well, though, like if there, if there's say a label out there and the label maybe provides a bit of comfort and understanding that they could be close to jump towards that as well. So say like I have a child who's struggling a little bit and I'm not too sure what their issues are, but then I hear that, oh, he could have this. There's, there's maybe um, a confirmation bias there, maybe that, that the parent might want to kind of lean towards that a bit more because it allows them then to understand what's going on. Would that be part of it as well as a, as a parent? Yeah, I think that can work mindset. both ways. Yeah. I think there's a kind of a sense of you see parents who come to you and they want to know what it is. And yeah. the label is a reassurance in the sense, okay, your child has ASD symptoms or your child has ADHD or your child is this. And there's a kind of, a, oh, thank God, now we know what to do. There are other parents who will go to everybody to prove that their child doesn't have something that they glaringly do. Okay, you know, so yeah. there's teachers it's telling them, there's crash people telling them mm-hmm. there's something wrong. They're going, no, it's, that's just that teachers, that's just that. And they don't want to see it in themselves. And yeah. so you can oftentimes have that problem where you're actually trying to to say, say to someone, actually, I think your child does have a problem. I think those seven people that you went to were all correct, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes we 
therapy shop to try and find someone who will confirm the diagnosis for us mm. or people who will confirm that there's nothing wrong. You know, um, and again, because that lack of the blood test x-ray, you know, you're it's going to It's such a fine line, things. yeah. Mm -hmm. Like there's no definite answer, as you said, that makes this, it's, like, it's, such, it's, it's such a challenging thing, really, you but, know. And again, I would say, you know, when it comes to assessment and things, and I know they're hard to come by and everything else, you're better off doing it for peace of mind. If you okay. can get, you know, if something is ruled out, it should be relief. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. rather than, you know, trying to kind of pretend it's not there or try and find some explanation for it. Mm. Yeah, know? well, I think like a, a, a lot of conversations we have with, with different people from different sectors on the podcast, a lot of it is all about talking about creating awareness for people because when you've awareness, then you can actually go recognize there's a problem and then you can actually get working on it then, which is huge. Um, when we were chatting earlier, you mentioned we were talking about parenting and we spoke about comparison, but I think comparison goes on a little bit further, a little bit deeper for the word that you mentioned, which, which was pressure. Um, as adults, um, and this is where I want to kind of link in with the, the, the book you've released recently. Um, where does this pressure come from? Do you think we touched on a little bit there? We talked about the comparison, keeping up with the Joneses, all this sort of stuff, social media. Um, where does this, is, is there, there's, there seems to be some sort of a pressure there that we all need to be the absolute best at everything we do. We need to have the, be the best dad, run the best podcast, be the best psychotherapist. And a lot of that seems to come from a good, a good place because we want to do better and improve. But where does that become potentially toxic, for example, where it, it makes other areas of your life suffer? And how do we kind of strike that balance between both? And, and that's the kind of reason why I kind of went to writing the book was because I felt we live in a kind of anti-regulation, anti-balance culture, right? So you'll hear terms like unlimited, all you can eat, binge watch, mm -hmm. and we're normalizing excess, right? Mm -hmm. And we have this kind of drive towards intensity. And in your fitness world, you'll understand this, you know, yeah. get six pack abs in five weeks and, you know, this sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's four weeks is what most people are advertising <laughs> these days. Now. Do you know what I mean? So drop the week, yeah. intensity over consistency, yeah. which is always a recipe for disaster, right? But where I, the biggest issue I have is, and again, let's go back to children. Look at the issues in children's sport, right? The referees, the silent sidelines, all these things. They're not two nine-year-olds knocking their heads off each other. Mm. They're parents, right? So when you see your child as an investment and you, I'm going to send you to the Gale School so you get an A in your Irish, I'm going to teach a piano because you can get points in your leaving cert. If I'm going to, send you to the soccer club because you're going to be a premiership footballer and be my pension or whatever it might be. Right from the off there, you've put pressure on something, right? If everything is an investment, your children have nothing to do for fun. Yeah. Right? So everything becomes, I'm doing this for a reason. And mm. parents go, I didn't bring you to all those things for you to just have the crack. Yeah. I want yeah, you yeah. to come out with your grade five piano or I want you to come out with your fluence in French because I sent you off to that thing for the summer. And... As parents, we need to stop seeing children as an investment. And we also need to stop seeing them as an, an extension of ourselves. You yeah. know, in some respects, they're their own human beings. But the parent problem is that, and, and I think we've fallen into this trap of, we have demonized average, mm. right? So if you hear only average, just average, you feel your child... It's usually the word that comes yeah. before average, yeah. isn't it? It's and your child's going to be disappointed. I mm. could set you a challenge. Everyone you meet tomorrow and they ask you, how are you doing? Say, I'm having an average day. They'll say, why, what's wrong? You know? <laughs> and so the idea, if you make average unsatisfactory, yeah. by definition of 10 people in a room, one is exceptional, one will struggle, the other eight are average. No matter what the standard is, yeah. most people will be average. So the issue of if we make average and demonize it, we make 
80% of the population consigned to discontent. Yeah. And that's what we've done. So if everyone is shooting for that one 10%, mm. right? And if you're not in the 10%, you've failed. So success is nine out of 10. Anything below nine is failure. Mm. We lose all sense of spectrum. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely, yeah. And the idea of where is that pressure coming from? Everyone needs to be in the top 10. Mm. Yeah, everyone's vying for that. And everything, because everything is functional, purposeful, investment, you know, I have to get this out of that. And, and actually, in fact, we've been a nation that has been, you know, known for the crack. You mm. know, we have lost a whole sense of what the crack is. Okay, do you know yeah. what I mean? Because I don't think we do anything for the crack anymore. Mm. I think there's always purpose, function, drive. But that demonization of average is the saddest thing I've ever seen happen. And that, that that's language. You know, language has moved. How, in keeping it in Ireland terms, when have you think that's kind of kicked into our culture? Probably about seven, eight years ago. Yeah. I think there was, a, there was a time, believe it or not, when you were told your child is average, that you went, phew. You know, because yeah. it was met with relief, not yeah. disappointment. But now it is. You know, and it, it's in line with, you know, everybody has to go to college. Yeah, if you're not going to call, oh, you're only going to PLC, or oh, you're only going to this, or you're going to take a year out. Here. But there's a judgment in all of that. Back in when CAO came out in 1993 or whatever it was, I think it was 60 percent of people got over 280 points. Now it's like 80 percent of people getting over that. You know, it's a massive hike in performance. Yeah, not because the exams have gotten easier, but our expectations have gotten higher. Okay. Do you know what I mean? And what we're doing is we're we're placing adult standards on children. I want you to, you go to an under nine soccer team. They're doing drills from Pep Guardiola's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Man City the manager team, has you know tactics for it. And yeah. all that sort of stuff. And that's the grown-ups. That's not the children. Yeah. Children aren't driving that. Yeah. Children go to play sport to meet their friends, to have fun, uh, and to learn something mm. new. And I think we've lost that. With the grown-ups then who are, say, like the, the, the under nine's manager, for example, and like... I know part of him and his logic in, in his logical thinking is going to say, I want the best for these kids. I want to give them the best session I can. But do you think that that comparison, is it fueled by like an underlying insecurity we all have? Is is, is that what's the, the underlying effect or is there does it go deeper again or is it something different, do you think? Uh, I think that it's naturally, the people who are, are drawn to those roles are people who are kind of, because there's a huge amount of work. I coach, I, I, I'm part of these processes. I know what goes into the WhatsApp groups and the organizing washing jerseys and all mm. that. You really need to be into it to do it. Yeah, do you know what yeah mean? it's a vocation. Fact, so the people who are into it are into it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And so the idea of uh, this under nines team is a reflection of me mm. and my ability. Like how ridiculous is that? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like you could go and coach a senior team and do brilliantly, but mm. you take the under nines, it's not the same thing. Yeah, yeah, do you yeah. know what I mean? Um, but the idea that we feel under pressure mm. to be to perform, to, and it's pressure from other parents. Mm. You know what I mean? Why are you playing him? He's rubbish. He wasn't there last week. Put it in him. Yeah. Uh, and that or, or sort of interference. Yeah, everyone involved in child sports says the same thing. The kids are great. It's the parents. I can't stand the kids wreck my head. And that's why so many walk away from it after Do you know what I mean? Like that, and that's us. Yeah. That is adults. That's where we have to hold the mirror up and say, what? like, we are creating the pressure mm. that people, like that. the narrative of better, you need to do better, you need to do that, comes from us, not them. Mm. Do you think then with this, like there'll be some people, a small minority maybe people listen to this who will say, oh, I don't agree with that because I perform well under pressure. I need to be put under pressure. Maybe it's a high, 
high achieving businessman, for example, use an example who says that no, I, I I don't agree with that. I want I think you need to be put under pressure to get out of your comfort zone and achieve, achieve, achieve. And absolutely you will probably have some quantitative success in certain aspects of your life. But then we go back to what we were talking about earlier about the qualitative stuff with, with spend time with your kids. It's obviously a lot harder to measure. And how do you form that distinction of maybe there is healthy times to to go above and beyond average, but then also then at what cost, how do you kind of evaluate the cost of going all in and putting yourself under a lot of pressure in work, for example? Yes, you might get the promotion or yes, you might get the hit the income targets you're trying to do. But again, there's a bigger picture here. It's not just all about work. If you've got a family, you've got mm. kids and you have to look after your own health as well. You see, people are varied. So the idea that there's going to be an obsessional group of people and they you may need that obsessional thing to perform at elite levels in your job or in sport or in the, you almost need the obsessionality in order mm. to do it but that's a tiny percentage of the world do you yeah. know what I mean? so there's a far greater percentage of people who are not within that bracket so if i am 14 years of age and i want to play sport i have to join a club that's going to train tuesday train thursday match saturday sunday aim for medals prove strength and conditioning or else I don't play at all. There's no five-a-side culture True, for teenagers. Yeah, yeah. There's no point, yeah. just social sport. Mm. Like, I want to move and I want to be active, but I don't want to, it's not a, it's not a lack of competition. Mm. Like, I play five-a-sides and I play tag rugby every week. And for that hour, it's very competitive. Mm. But if I had to do it twice a week and meet on a Sunday and do it, I wouldn't be able to do it yeah, at all. Yeah. So what we're doing is we're, we're taking an elite model mm. of training and, you know, and 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 opposing that on children. So that's the sport model you mm. have to buy into. Or you don't play sport at all. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So, and I've always said it, my, my dream is, and I'm going to do this someday, set up like a thing where on Wednesday even there's an Astro pitch and kids come, give five jerseys each, they play for an hour, go home. Mm. And that's their next Wednesday, come back and do it. And I think you'd pick up a lot of the kids because there's ego-driven kids who want medals, prizes, unbelievably so. And that's, Absolutely, they should be supported. They should have a pathway. Is that should... natural or is that passed on from parents or is it both? Both, okay. both. You know, sometimes you can't create competitive in a child who's not, but there's just kids who are just, you know, see them at under fours and they're slide tackles. And they're, <laughs> they just need to, to yeah. they have that drive in them. And, uh, and I think from the point of view of, there should be a pathway for those children, for sure. But there shouldn't be no pathway for anyone else. Yeah. You know, and I think it's in some ways, the loudest voice in the room determines the culture of team mm. in many ways and that's oftentimes the loudest parent or the most high performing child within the group mm. and we all need to kind of to their their needs, yeah. their, and so for me there's there's a need for us to kind of not succumb to the pressure mm. and, and like I would say clubs and communities are interesting because I, I always put it this way you either say the community serves our club so we want the best of the community to come here and play and mm. we want to win medals and prizes or the club serves the community so whatever the community is made up of, we will provide for those people, mm. right? And if that's explicit, that's fine. Then the competitive kids go here and the ones who kind of just want to play go there. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But it's not explicit. We say, we're a welcoming all club, but as soon as you get in, it's come it's, something yeah, quite Yeah, it's different. a rigid structure yeah. there straight away. You're in or you're out, yeah. Yeah, so I think there's, yeah, as the adults in the room, and I think as a lot of dads probably listen to this podcast, we need to kind of say you know are, are we catering for most mm. or all or whose pressure are we succumbing to to do it yeah it's a great know? it's a great point i love that that's a really good summary about the lack of a five-a-side culture in kids mm. sport like it's it's a great way of putting it uh into perspective because i think like 
I don't know what age group it is. It's usually around 12 or 13 when kids are still only finding their way. It's like you have to choose. Do you want to play Gaelic or do you want to mm-hmm. play football? Because they're both twice a week and they're playing at the weekends and all of a sudden they all clash. And it's like these athletes have to make this huge decision. You know, like I, I was forced that decision. When I was younger. I was better at football than I was at GAA. But I always, always look back and think what my life could have been like if I played GAA, if I chose the other way. But at the time, mm. I didn't have the perspective or the capacity. And then as each year rolls on, it's another year without playing the other sports. So it's harder to go back each mm. year, you know. And again, you're only a child. Then it's you kind of wake up in your 20s when you have the perspective and realize, oh, yeah, that wasn't really, that wasn't ideal. But again, n- nobody meant any harm. Everybody, mm. the Gaelic team just wanted to be successful and be the best mm. they could be. So you, they, this was the requirement that was needed. But, um, and I, it's important to say, I don't think any coach goes out and says, I'm going to destroy the self-esteem. Yeah, loves yeah absolutely. Yeah, and it, yeah. it's never that intention. Mm. Uh, it's always with the best of intentions. But I just think there's, and we need to sit back a little bit and say, you know, what are we providing here? And, and where's this pressure coming from? Mm. And how can we relieve the valve of it a little mm. bit? Definitely, um, yeah. And, and those who want pressure opt for it and those who don't should have exactly, a menu option yeah. too. Just for perspective, like again, this is something I'm always trying to balance in the gym, like the program I run with Bulletproof Dad, we'd have some guys who are way more into their training than others, but then, so we're trying to create an environment where the first and foremost, everybody enjoys showing up to and it's just trying to, we have a, a model that we kind of call the three Fs. It's like form, flow and fun. So fun is a big part of what we do. So form is kind of how we look after all the guys and their needs and individualized stuff depending on where they're at. So if they want to push on on certain exercises and strength and stuff, they can do that. Then the flow is kind of how we can keep everything moving together. So if I have a beginner here, a more advanced guy here, how it can all intertwine. But then for all the guys, even the advanced guys, it does need to have some element of fun to it as well because if it's all serious training and they train and train and train and train and they'll get results in mm. adverted commas, which is whether it's weight loss or strength or whatever else. But if it's just too intense, they've been working all day, they're mm. flat out at home, they have to have somewhere where they can kind of just relieve a bit of stress and have a bit of crack. And it's it's so important. Some mm. lads value the crack over the training. Mm. Some lads value the training over the crack. And you're trying to balance that. And you never get it fully right for everybody, but it's a constant thing we're working on. Mm. And that's in adults. So mm. like, again, you can probably multiply that by 100 when it comes to, to kids, I'd say. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I mean, you just, I remember looking at the, the training session that we were doing one day and there was about five minutes before when everyone was getting, and the lads were just all taking shots on each other and they were having the crack and there yeah. was a few lads swinging out at each other and and then we called them all in and said, right, lads, shush, shush, everyone listen up. Blah, blah. I was thinking, you know, given what these kids have lost out on in the last number of years, five minutes of drills and 55 minutes of messing around actually would be more valuable to yeah. them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And if I'd suggested that, they would have thought I was nuts. Just yeah, a lazy or, trainer yeah, doesn't or, know what he's doing. You know, yeah, parents yeah. would have said, yeah, exactly, yeah. you know, what am I sending them down here for? He's going to get out in there this evening. Yeah. You know, so there's there's a almost a consumer-driven demand to do the wrong thing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's funny, like the optics there, they probably want to see the trainer with the the whiteboard out and the tactics and stuff. Oh, he's really into it. He's a brilliant coach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, like you're literally paralysis by analysis going mm-hmm. on to a 10-year-old. So, but it's funny, like the, uh, what you're getting rewarded for by the parents is probably probably not what's best serving the kids in a way yeah it could be what's causing most kids to drop out yeah do you know what I mean where would you see in your clinic is there a certain bracket or point where you see a, a major kind of maybe it's a, a certain year in school or a certain age bracket where you see there's kind of critical point yeah, where drop off happens wrote about it recently second years that is mm. the, the big peak year for bullying for leaving sport for exclusion and it's interesting because in primary school you're kind of 
best friends, you know, you and me and only the two of us and it's kind of territorial. And then first year, everyone's finding their feet. And then in second, third year, that's when the group mentality happens. Yeah. So there's a much larger membership. As a parent, would you probably let your guard down a bit as well? Yeah. I'm sure when your kid goes in first year, you're you're watching out for everything and then they know they're settled, they're fine now. It can kind of... Everyone's yeah. like, they've gotten through first year, they know Always, their way around, yeah. they've got the geography of the place, they know the timetables were sorted. It's actually, that's the time where you actually need more intense intervention yeah. because it's the the kind of peak year where problems can happen but um it's it also that that's the hormonal surge it's also the kind of jump from you know teenage discos from your GAR jersey to makeup there's a lot going on yeah going on um puberty onset periods all that sort of stuff yeah. so um yeah it's 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 a moving day as they say in golf yeah and uh, do you see like is, is sport something that you would always obviously you can't push it on kids and there's different sports that two different kids whether it's martial arts or whether it's a team sport or whatever but is it something that you you would value a lot as huge yeah. I, I can tell you that um, there's children who come to me where sport has saved their lives yeah uh, there's also two children who come to me where sport has ruined their lives mm. you know so well, it has it's that the people like, in the sport though, yeah so, for yeah. sure and, and it's the culture of it but mm. um, it's it's like a teacher you know a good teacher can mm. absolutely help a child so much they can excel but a bad teacher who they just clash with can mm. create so much damage you know mm. so the um but sport as a communal coming together learning skills together camaraderie life laboratory of life mm. experience uh, when done well can be absolutely transformative mm. for children for sure 100% yeah I couldn't agree mm. more there definitely but um with with where we're at with with the the four to seven zone, we I think we've we've got a great perspective of it there. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that that maybe I've missed out on? Yeah, no, the, the four to seven zone, the whole idea of the notion is when I people come to me, I'd ask them, How's your sleep? How's your appetite? All that. And they would ask them to rate it out of ten. So everyone would say, everyone that was sitting in front of me said one, two, three, or eight, nine, ten. I never saw it's those good or four, bad, yeah. never saw the four to seven mm-hmm. people. So there's something about these four to seven people that's they're doing something right. They're not ending up in therapy. Oh, I know? get you, yeah, yeah. So the issue was when you when you look at your diet, your exercise, your approach to your work, your work life balance, your anxiety levels, life will throw us into one, two, three, and eight, nine, ten for mm-hmm. sure, right? But the problem is staying there, so you almost have to find your way back to four to seven, mm-hmm. even momentarily. So you have a busy thing going on in work, you might be eight out of ten work for that mile. But when that sound calms down, you go down to one, two, three. You know if you can't be arsed and you're really lost motivation for your work is down by one, two, three. That might happen for a week or two, but you come back up. Mm. The problem is staying in those zones or not spotting it. Mm. So the four to seven zone is very simply keeping an eye on your biology, your psychology, your social world. Like, am I spending too much time? I can't be with myself or am I, you know, isolating myself more than I ever would? Or am I going out too much in my alcohol intake, my food intake? And like it's small changes in, you know, from the diet perspective. You know, oftentimes we go, right, I'm going paleo, caveman diet. I'm going to, you know, and I, and by Saturday you've failed. Yeah. You know, because you're set the expectation. Yeah, piece of bread, high, yeah. You know, you know. Um, and so if the, the, the idea of the 47 zone is in that middle. If you can go from eight to five and two to four, that's actually enough. Mm. You know, but it's enough for you. It doesn't have to, the dial doesn't have to flip. Um, you know, and it, it balance isn't, you know, eating a pizza with a slender tone on your stomach. You know, that's, <laughs> that's not what balance is. You know, <laughs> Some lads listen to this now are heartbroken <laughs> hearing that. <laughs> it's, it's about trying to keep it in the middle as much as possible. And, and, and I'll leave it on this. When you're talking about physical health, I'm sure you're saying getting your heart rate up and getting your calories down. Mental health is the opposite. 
Okay. It's about equilibrium, balance, yeah. and middle. It's not about those extremes. Because yeah. the extremes is when you're in the red zones. Yeah. It's the middle when you're safest. Definitely, yeah. Well, I think going back to the what you spoke about there, the heart rate zones and the calories, it, you do that for short term, but you mm. can't be, like people who want to lose weight talk about calorie deficit. You can't be in a calorie deficit for your whole life. because yeah, you can't have a pulse of 140 <laughs> all the time. Away, like, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> you do have to go back to the equilibrium that keeps us safe. Uh, Dr. Colin Lockett, this has been an absolutely fascinating chat. Before I let you go, there's going to be people who've taken huge value out of this today. If they want to find out more about you, what's the best thing they can do? Is it pick up the book? Is it, Follow you on Instagram. Tell, tell us where the best things to do are. Yeah, the 47 done is is available in all bookshops that's mm. out since about May. And it is, it's 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 not just a parenting thing, it's for adults in mm. general. Uh, it's available on Audible in the next two weeks or three weeks. So hopefully late September should be available. Okay, brilliant, on there. yeah. Um, Instagram, Dr. Coleman, I think is the thing on that. I yeah. put up some reels and kind of spread a tip on a Sunday evening if I can remember to do it. And a few videos um, of the dog as well. Then you'll probably you have the dog is there too. Yeah. The dog is there too. But um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I mean, again, uh, I, I try and make content as available as possible to help as many people as possible. But um, it's, yeah, I'm easy found. I'm on the Ray Darcy show every month and the examiner every week. So brilliant. Catch brilliant. me somewhere there. Excellent. And just to finally summarize, you mentioned there Jigsaw was the the um, company, or not the company, but the uh, organization yeah. to look out for. Yeah. Yeah. So Jigsaw are kind of trying to address that gap between those who need to go to mental health services and those who kind of are don't need any service at all so it's yeah. that kind of middle gap um, and I've spoken to members of their team recently and you know they've updated me that they've quite a few services nationwide now at this stage and Brilliant. and they would be a good point of, of contact yeah excellent listen thank you so much for your time Colin it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here today Andy thank you Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of the Bulletproof Dad podcast. If you enjoyed it and you took value from it, maybe you have friends or in a similar situation to yourself with young kids who could also benefit, send the link on to them in the WhatsApp group, let them know about it, and please spread the good word of the Bulletproof Dad podcast. 